you live better when your mind's integrated with your body. Even when your body's changing, your body will always be the best home your mind's ever had. Even when it's not doing what you want. An ungrounded mind is an agitated mind ready for anxiety. And when there's so much change that happens with ALS, what happens with all of our lives, if you don't stay grounded in your body, even though you're mad as hell at your body, the, the agitation and anxiety will be worse. You'll have a harder time breathing. So it's like we gotta stay connected to our bodies as long as we can. And there's a way to do it even as you're leaving it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode four of Connecting ALS. I'm your host, Mike Stevenson, from the Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter of the ALS Association. This month, we go deep on the topic of feeding tubes with two experts from an ALS clinic here in Minneapolis, and then spend time discussing the mind-body connection with globally recognized yoga instructor and author, Matthew Sanford. Both interviews feature some excellent perspective, so I hope you find this episode particularly helpful and if you do, please let us know via our Facebook and Twitter channels or send us an email at connectingals at alsmn.org. For our first segment, we visited the ALS Center of Excellence at Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and met with Kim Chernus and Lisa Molnar, both of whom have a considerable experience working with individuals living with ALS. Kim is a speech pathologist and Lisa is a dietitian. So it was interesting to hear their thoughts on feeding tubes, a subject of significance for so many faced with an ALS diagnosis. Here's what they had to say. Today we are recording from the beautiful Clinic and Specialty Care Center at the Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I am delighted to be joined by two amazing clinicians in Kim Chernus and Lisa Molnar. Good morning, Kim and Lisa. Thanks for joining us on Connecting ALS. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yes. Kim is an experienced speech-language pathologist who has been working with individuals at the ALS Center of Excellence here at Hennepin Healthcare, and Lisa works in that same clinic as a registered dietitian. Can you each tell us a little bit about why you went into your chosen fields? Let's start with you, Kim. Yes, well, essentially I was in my undergraduate and I had a slight crisis, wondering if I was going in the right field. I was in public relations. I like to communicate and kind of bridge the gap between people's needs and the public. But I found myself not really enjoying the field as much as I thought. So I switched my classes and I jumped right into speech pathology. So Kim, once you made the decision to become a speech pathologist, what was it about ALS or neuroscope diseases that interested you? Yes. Well, my first experience was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I was doing my graduate program there under Dr. Joanne Robbins, and she's a well-known speech pathologist in the field of dysphagia. Mm. And she worked in a multidisciplinary clinic. Um, it was a multidisciplinary neuromuscular clinic at UW. Okay. And that was my first experience with the ALS population. And I just fell in love with that population at that point. And I was able to gain more experience at my fellowship at the VA in San Antonio, doing home health care with some of the vets and going out there working with augmentative communication and swallowing in the ALS population. So I knew it was something I wanted to continue on with. And when I started my career at Hennepin Healthcare, I put it as a goal right away. And I didn't know that I'd be able to transition into the clinic as fast as 
I was, but I've really enjoyed my coworkers here and working with that population group, and I've been able to continue on, and, and it's been wonderful. How about you, Lisa? Do you mean the field of nutrition? Yeah. Or, or, or ALS and nutrition? Well, yeah, you both and, really. <laughs> I, well, I guess I started, I was just talk about uh, getting into ALS. I've been at HCMC for 12 years, and I started here as a maternity leave coverage 11 years ago and fell in love with it. And kind of my specialty with nutrition has always been nutrition support and, and education. And so nutrition support would be feeding tubes and the nutrition that goes along with those. And so the ALS population has been a great population because I can work with them through the whole process of deciding to get a feeding tube and and mm-hmm. using their feeding tube. And then also the kind of what made me fall in love with ALS is definitely the patients and then also the clinic here at HCMC. It's a great group of people to work with and it's really fun to come to work and both to get to know the patients and to get to know the, the staff here. This is a really amazing clinic. Yeah. Uh, we've mentioned that a number of times to have this in the Twin Cities and talking with folks that we serve that come to this clinic and they all speak about how wonderful the clinicians are and the neurologists. And I think they feel comfortable coming to this clinic knowing that they're going to receive wonderful care. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a reflection on you both and, and those that you work with. The reason that I wanted to bring the two of you on today, uh, Kim, you alluded to, was to discuss a topic that's a difficult one for many people living with ALS. And there are a lot of layers to the conversation. I'm talking about feeding tubes and everything that comes along with them. To start with, Lisa, Mm -hmm. can you explain for the benefit of some of our listeners who may not know exactly what a feeding tube is, just how that works? Well, the feeding tubes we're talking about today are most of the time either radiographically inserted feeding tubes or, or percutaneous endoscopic feeding tubes, which both of them are procedures, like surgical procedures where there's a tube going directly into your stomach mm-hmm. and they're meant for long-term nutrition. So months to, to as long as you need it. And they're meant to be your sole form of nutrition or to kind of supplement the nutrition and hydration and medication needs that you have is meant to be another route to get to your stomach. Sure. And for those living with ALS, that is by far the most common form of tube, correct? Correct. Yeah. Because there's others. Yeah. Kind of varies facility to facility that the procedure they do in order to get that tube in place. Here we do on the rig or the radiographic inserted gastrostomy at Hennepin. And we have for, I think, 10 years now that method of insurance it's worked well for us okay and the patients have enjoyed that method of placement i think compared sure. to the other one i was here for the first couple of years okay so. yeah we're going to get into a little bit more about yeah. the procedure itself in yep. a bit i want to ask you a few more questions about that kim would you say that a majority of individuals who are diagnosed with als will eventually have to consider a feeding tube as an option, or does it depend primarily on disease progression? If they're bulbar onset, which is usually one-third of the population, then that is something they'll need to be considered a little more earlier on. Mm. If it's more of a limb onset, then it kind of depends on the disease progression and goals of care. Breathing and their respiratory status is going to play a big role into that. It's easier to have the conversation earlier on before even difficulties on that path arise if able, so people can start thinking about if that's a route they'd like to take, mm-hmm. and then we can answer those questions before they feel like they need to make a decision. Sure. What are some of the symptoms and signs that you do look for as a clinician to determine if it's the right time to start having that discussion? Well, I'll go first because I'm sure Lisa will fill in on everything I'm missing on my end. When I'm assessing someone, I look more at their swallowing function and to see if they're having any signs of dysphagia, any signs of difficulty swallowing. Once they start presenting with that, I'll speak with Lisa and say, 
oh, they're having trouble. They're not able to consume regular foods anymore. It's really hard to chew, hard mm -hmm. to swallow. It's taking them a long time. So we'll look at, it. does it seem safe with eating and drinking? As well as how long is it taking to eat a meal? If it's taking more than half an hour, sometimes a lot of effort goes into it. And they may oh. be thinking a lot about eating throughout the day and not getting the nutrition they need. And that's when Lisa really comes into play to help supplement that the way she can and maybe start discussing as feeding tube a route that maybe we should start talking about. Sure. I guess the other kind of piece would be breathing function. And we talk about that force vital capacity being above 50% usually just because you want to be at your best when you have a feeding tube placement because you are, um, it is a procedure where you are sedated for and you want to go into it um, as best as you can. And so you want to go into it nourished and breathing okay and well supported. And if you go into it malnourished and your breathing's not really great, your, your outcomes after the procedure are just not as good. So we want to set you up for success that way. So is there kind of a critical window where someone has to consider, I need to make this decision right now if I'm going to have a feeding tube placed? Do you talk to them about that? <laughs> um, yes, uh, I think the neurologist uh, talks about, I mean, the neurologist ultimately is the one who writes the, the order for the feeding tube mm -hmm. placement. And so that breathing number is probably the most critical sort of yes, no, what they're comfortable placing the feeding tube and definitely below 50% we've done before, but it's going to vary person to person on kind of how strong they are otherwise mm. in order to how successful they're going to be. And they need to have an informed decision about like this might not go as well as if it would have gone if you would have made, you know, if we had, we had had this conversation earlier. And I guess going back to the other question, I think yeah. the other thing I talk about a lot with patients is joy of eating. There are people in this world who love eating and love food. And if food provides them so much joy and it takes them all day to eat and that is just fine for them. <laughs> like that is how they want to be spending their lives. And then they don't love the tube as much and maybe it'd still be a good idea to get the tube for when they would need it, right. but they might not use it just because it. they just love eating so much. <laughs> yeah, let's get into that a little bit. I imagine one of the reasons why this is among the last things people want to discuss when they're in clinic is that it means the eventual loss of something that human beings really look forward to eating our favorite foods that has to be so tough to wrap your head around. How do you even start those kind of conversations? Well, I like to start having a conversation saying just because you are getting a feeding tube doesn't usually mean that you won't be able to eat anything at that time frame. Okay. Uh, typically, when people are getting a feeding tube, they're still able to consume different types of food and liquid. And we start talking about how to eat the food that they enjoy and maybe just modify it a little bit to make it safer. Mm. At some point, usually people eat regular food like steaks, hamburgers, lasagna, but then at some point it gets harder to chew, harder to propel it back. And then sure. we talk about, well, maybe you can still have that steak, but let's cut it up really small. Let's ground it up. Let's at some point maybe blend the food. But mm. getting a feeding tube isn't an all or nothing. All of a sudden you don't get to have the pleasure of eating anymore. It's just you may not have to see it so much as an effort. Like this is an exercise, but instead, oh, I get to eat what I want to eat until I feel tired. And then the rest of my nutrition is going to come in through the feeding tube. A lot of people feel more energy when they get all the nutrition they need. They didn't mm. realize that they were slowly not eating as much as they should be eating. And so they are able to be more of the person they want to be and have more personality with their family just by getting that nutrition and not having to spend so much time focusing on receiving it. Yeah, I'm sure. And Lisa, can you tell us what exactly is consumed during tube feeding? What 
kind of nourishment are we talking about in that process? Um, there is, you name it, we could do it. Um, <laughs> the most common thing is going to be a commercial standard enteral formula. It is broken down in fat carbohydrate and protein, and it provides everything you need from a vitamin and mineral and nutrition standpoint. There's a really big whole food movement going on, and so the companies have responded to that. And so there's a lot of whole food formulas on, available at market now that didn't used to be. Insurance coverage is a little different with that, and so it doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means that it it's, there's a little bit more that needs to happen. And I do have a small handful of people who also make their own food that they put through the tube. That is a lot of work, but if it's Let's worth say, the yeah. work, and work the other. I mean, for people, for some people that it's worth it and they have it down to kind of a science after a while of how they, it just kind of becomes a routine to their day. To me, I always just say it's it's your tube. You can put whatever you want really into it. It has to be a certain consistency in order to fit through the tube, but I'm not going to tell you you can't put anything sure. in there. And I, a lot of people use it for, for other things like coffee in the morning uh-huh. time or kind of their favorite things that they would have normally taken by mouth that they still want to consume. Yeah, food and beverages become such a part of our routine and and a huge part of our day. And you start to think about, am I going to lose that part of my routine in addition to eating or drinking, whatever that is. So I'm sure it's helpful to hear that they do have options like that. Coffee, I know, is a huge one for many people. So Yes. And I think going back to the other question you had too, I think a lot of people, the feeding tube is not at all about a feeding tube. It's about what that means in the progression of their disease. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of, for a lot of people, I think it's kind of, um, it's admitting that there's diseases progressed more than they ever thought they wanted it to yeah, or definitely ever thought they wanted it to. And so it's hard to get over that. And so I think showing that the tube would give them a little, it gives them more control, even though it is getting the net going the next step, but it allows you to, like Kim was saying, you can blend your food, but if that isn't something you want to do, you don't have to, or you can thicken your liquids if you need to, but you don't have to. That way you have some options and choices where if you don't have it, your, your options are a little bit more limited if you're starting to have swallowing progression. So do you feel that individuals and families coming to clinic when they've reached a certain benchmark in their disease progression that they're expecting this conversation and they're nervous about it and they come into a particular visit thinking all right we're probably going to talk about feeding tubes today do they do they hit you with the questions right off the bat or is it something that you more often as clinicians will introduce i think it is where they're at with the progression some are more planners than others mm. some have a little more insight on where they're at and what they need and they'll come to us with questions or families will come if especially if they're researching things ahead of time. Um, But sometimes it's us posing the question, and I think that takes a longer conversation, giving them time to think about it, having the neurologist give his input, talking a little more about their goals, answering questions that they have. A lot of times there is a thought about a feeding tube or a barrier that might be in their mind, something that's causing them to be fearful that we don't even know to ask about. And so just wondering where are you at with understanding feeding tube placements and what are your fears about it and help them and kind of address those, make them feel more comfortable. And obviously it's an individual decision. Mm-hmm. So it's never us pushing one way or another. It's that we just give our clinical advice on where we think it may benefit them or maybe if feeding tube is just something they don't see in their future and they're okay with that and, and we talk about what that would look like, then, right. then we respect that, that decision as well. 
Yeah, I think it's a long process that is talked about between the neurologist and Kim and myself. And the person who starts the conversation varies kind of for for each patient. And I think a lot of times I don't feel like they're bringing it up when you come in, but I think a lot of them know that between going to support groups or looking it up on the internet and stuff like that, they know that that it's there as -hmm. an option. I think they have a lot of questions about what a good time of it is. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions because feeding tubes usually are seen with people who have strokes or who have brain injuries or, you know, where it would look differently if if it was a person who had ALS had a feeding tube versus a a different disease state. And so kind of getting them to see how that, what the difference would be with that. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I hear neurologists and clinicians talk a lot about uh, weight loss following a diagnosis. Why are calories and weight maintenance so critical for individuals that are living with ALS? There's some research that shows if you lose more than 10% of your body weight, the the rate of progression of the disease is uh, significantly quicker. And so we really push keeping your weight up. So that way, even though for a lot of people, that means that your body looks different (laughs) because you do lose muscle mass. And so then you'll gain some fat mass. And so a lot of people have trouble with that. But from a standpoint of survival and longevity of disease and being as independent as long as you can, it's really helpful. And so it's, it's, I I feel like it's a conversation I'm having every, every time I see the same person, I was reminding them that it's okay to have dessert. It's okay to eat calorie beverages. It's Mm -hmm. okay. It's the opposite that everything else in the media is telling them to do. Right. (laughs) Because that's, that it's more helpful for them. Yeah. And there's some research that shows that people who are overweight and mildly obese progress slower too. And so the thinner people or the normal BMI people tend to just progress a little quicker. And so it's the opposite of anything they've ever told them. Right. <laughs> so you have to keep reiterating, like, it's okay to be a little overweight. Yeah, I'm talking about It's okay folks. to eat dessert after every meal. <laughs> right. It's okay that we, I know that you haven't lost a lot of weight, but a feeding tube would be helpful because we don't want you to lose any more weight. Because mm-hmm. they're like, well, I've only lost a few pounds. But it's like, yeah, you only lost a few pounds pounds right now, but yeah. you know, like where this road is going, you're you're gonna lose more if we don't do something about it. So I've heard folks talk about retraining their brains in that way. You know, like I've tried to avoid sweets or so much sugar or fat for this long period of my life. And now it's they're asking me to eat ice cream every night or drink chocolate milk all the time. And it's yeah, it's I imagine a little bit tricky to to navigate that knowing that you need to Yes. Add weight if possible and keep weight on as no. much as you can. And especially because we know all of that there's a cognitive component to some people who have ALS. And so it's hard to, to reframe the way you think about food that way too. Yeah. In terms of the procedure itself, is there any physical pain associated with the procedure? You mentioned sedation, but in the immediate aftermath or once the tube is in place, is there pain that people will experience? Yes. I see everyone pretty much right the, the day of or the morning after the, the feeding tube procedure. They, for the most part, most of them are on some sort of pain medication. The day after they have the procedure, they all leave the hospital and they have to be on pills that they would take. So not IV pain medication. And they're controlled with that. Like okay. they're not, it's not that you're leaving in pain. It's that you do need to take medication usually in order to be comfortable mm-hmm. for the first few days. And the, the level of pain varies so much person to person. I've had people who need prescription pain medication and I have people who are fine with just over-the-counter pain medication. Yeah. And some people who the day after they can go to a party and other people where the weekend it's like, okay, I need to right. lay low and because I'm in a lot of pain. Yeah, there's such a variance there. But I'm usually sure. people tell me within the week they're feeling pain-wise back to their usual self. Okay. Kind of depending on their energy level going into the procedure, kind of where they get back. If they're able to get back to their baseline, it will vary depending on where 
how they were going into it. So if they mm. were pretty weak and they probably should have gotten the feeding tube a little earlier, it'll take longer for them to bounce back mm-hmm. because they were probably dehydrated and malnourished coming in. Yeah. But if they were doing, they were well hydrated and well nourished and they got the tube, they bounce back within the week for sure. And I think that kind of goes back to the importance of us bringing it up early on mm-hmm. as much as possible so we don't get to that point later on where the outcome may seem a little more right. difficult than it needed to be. And we can be that voice ahead of time, maybe preparing them in the light of how it can be helpful versus receiving some of those negative effects that can be right. essentially overcome. Yeah, I believe it. The two of you have alluded to it, and I know there's a lot of collaboration among the ALS clinic team to ensure that everyone is getting the best care possible. Kim, how much do the two of you, as well as your colleagues in clinic, connect on this issue specifically? Do you come to a consensus and say, okay, here's where we bring up tube feeding, or I think this really is the time where we need to have this conversation? Yeah, we discuss everyone ahead of time to see where they're at and some of what they're expressing on the phone when they talk to our nurse Mm -hmm. Uh, ahead of time. It's really helpful to hear where they feel like they're at, saying, I'm having some trouble getting all my hydration. Maybe I'm not eating as much or, the you know, a lot of times the spouse is the great mirror to a person and will say, well, I realize you're eating only half. You know, those things help us start posing the question before we even see them that day. But in clinic, a lot of times, I think we have discussions after one of us will speak with the person and we'll talk about it. And usually Lisa and I will have the conversation together and we'll talk with Dr. Miser, Dr. Sith, neurologists, and and it's definitely collaborative, even with occupational therapy as well. Sometimes mm. set up and having difficulty eating by getting the food to their mouth is a barrier to them eating as much right. as they want to. And so there's a lot of other things that are on board and social work and have conversations regarding maybe cognitive or behaviorally. If we all are in denial at some point and getting mm-hmm. past some of those issues, it's really helpful for a team to be able to have that conversation. So I would say in in the clinic, sometimes it's being made after a clinician will see somebody, mm-hmm. and then we discuss a lot of times after, but we usually will have the neurologist pop back in to have a final decision made by the end of that day. And that's one of the benefits of the multidisciplinary system, right? Mm-hmm. We've got into that on some of our other episodes, but no one is on an island and knowing that you can bounce ideas off one another mm-hmm. and really kind of share the information that you have, it's it's helpful for all sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's helpful to kind of talk about it throughout the clinic too, because I don't want, if if I talked about it for a long period of time, Dr. Miser doesn't want to go in and also talk about the same topic and for dwell, a long period yeah. of time, because <laughs> people aren't listening then, or at least right. I wouldn't be. So that way we can cover it and, and hopefully, and, and then they get different angles of it too, like from your perspective, what it would be like, because my approach might be different than Mactomizers or something, why he would be saying, yeah. you know, like. Yeah, and your various specialties will yeah. lend a different perspective. Yeah. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes Lisa and I can even go in and see somebody together mm-hmm. and that can be helpful because they'll ask us a question that maybe it's better addressed for a dietitian and sometimes the question might be better addressed by speech pathologists and then we can be there at the same time and right. they don't have to worry about holding on to that question in their head or maybe repeating it to more mm-hmm. people. And then that, uh, I always like asking the question, like, what 
did they tell you? Because what people heard and what you people what people what you told them aren't always the same thing. And so it's nice to kind of clarify things if they misheard something or misinterpreted something or yeah. or kind of add add to it. Because sometimes you don't always hear everything that is said. Oh, there's so much information coming in on those clinical settings; it can be overwhelming. So no, I I feel I, I mean the, the, there's great benefits to the multidisciplinary clinic, but at the same time, I feel for these ALS patients because they're coming in and everyone is telling them. I mean, we're all trying to be very helpful, but it's a lot of change for them in one day to be told that would help them. (laughs) For sure. The last question that I have for the both of you, what advice do you offer families who are starting down this path, starting to research and consider uh, that it may be time for a feeding tube? Uh, Kim, you said a lot of it is about their comfort. What do you say to them to help them feel more comfortable? Mm -hmm. I would say that kind of bringing it around what is the big picture. And a lot of times the big picture is family and the big picture is being a part of activities the most you can. And with that being a main goal and a lot of times preserving life and quality of life, I believe being able to talk about these difficult issues before a crisis feels like it's happening. So being able to discuss through that a feeding tube doesn't typically mean you can't eat or drink anything Mm -hmm. at that time. Usually it might mean taking medication safely. And so maybe you'll have less pain because you can take those medications safely and more regularly and and having more hydration. So maybe you feel less constipated because you get all the hydration you need. Mm -hmm. And then getting all the calories, like I mentioned before, so you are able to have the energy to be with your family and not using all that energy during a meal. Some people say, after I talk a long period of time and then I try swallowing during a meal, it's really hard for me. So it's hard to have those conversations that we Mm -hmm. have, which are social opportunities during a dinner and eat 75% of your plate. Right. So instead of viewing your food as exercise or viewing your meal as effortful or, or what am I not able to have anymore, you get to pick a little more of what do I want to spend my energy eating? Do I want to spend my energy having mm-hmm. that Sunday? Do I want to spend my energy having a piece of French toast, even if it's only a few bites and I get the rest of my nutrition through a peg? Everyone looks a little different, but just to debunk the myth that my swallow is gone with a mm. peg and we can have or a feeding tube and we can have that conversation earlier. And then on top of that, speaking with Lisa about the process, I think the process can be scary. And so if mm-hmm. they can discuss what it actually looks like and Lisa comes in with, with a tube and it does a really great job describing the process, I think that can remove some fears and we can have a conversation and have action faster and you have even better results. Yeah, there's going to be anxiety, right? No matter yes. what. And it's mm-hmm. totally understandable. Mm-hmm. So I imagine Lisa reducing some of that anxiety is critical to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I um I think uh, there's a lot of resources out there that 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 patients and families can look for 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 feeding to placement. I think the ALS Association has a lot of great ways to research on their website and mm-hmm. support groups are really helpful. There's a lot of stuff on the internet that isn't helpful. So mm. I think looking to your multidisciplinary team or websites that the ALS Association recommends is very helpful. I think a lot of it is having a feeding tube, I think, gives you more control, which is helpful. And getting it earlier is so much better. Unless you're going on invasive ventilation and I would say if you're at a point where you are really eating absolutely nothing and it is I don't know if it'll be helpful because people I see if they get it if they get a feeding tube 
And it's really early on and they're starting to have swallowing trouble and they just use it for like 10% of their nutrition or 10% of their hydration. Mm -hmm. They do so well because then you're never in a deficit. But people, when they come in and they're really just eating bites and sips and they want a feeding tube, yeah. is really, the food and the liquids are still going to your stomach when I when you get a feeding tube in place. And that stomach's really been only used to tablespoons. Mm. And so if I, we put a tube in that stomach and then we give you cups of food and liquids, it's very uncomfortable. And so we have to slowly work up to it again. And so a lot of times people don't like it then. So trying to get them to do it earlier on is really helpful because people like it more. From a logistical standpoint, who is cleaning the tube and maintaining the tube? How does that process all work? So typically, I mean, if you have hand function left, that I mean, if it, uh, strong enough hand function to do it yourself, then then the patient is doing it. Mm. But for the majority of our patients, that that isn't the case, especially all the time. Eventually, someone will have to help you. Cleaning around the feeding tube site is no different than cleaning the rest of your body. So it's not, it shouldn't be anything scary. Mm-hmm. It's just soap and water. And then, but flushing the tube itself, it, it takes some dexterity. And so typically, it's a family member who's doing that. The issue with people who don't live with family or friends, and they live in a, a facility, Facility, it'll vary facility to facility of, of what, whether they'll use your feeding tube. So if oh. you're in a skilled nursing facility, yes, yes, they will use your feeding tube for you and they provide the formula. Okay. But if you're in an assisted living facility or independent living, a lot of times you're you're asked to provide that service yourself. And wow. so you're paying out of pocket for it or having a family member come in and do it for you if you're not physically able to do it yourself. So that's kind of something I talk about too. If someone is in that sort of living situation of who will use it, because it might be really helpful to get this tube in, but then you don't have any way to use it, right. you know? So you have to kind of think down the road with that too. Yeah. And are you flushing it after every meal? Does it need to be clean and flushed after every I usually use tell it? people if they're not going to use their tube at all and they're just really getting it for a placeholder for the future, I would just, it would be nice to flush it once a day so it stays patent or flushing mm-hmm. eventually. To be honest, for the type, type of tube we put in is a balloon gastrostomy. So the way it's held in place is just by a balloon. And mm. so if they are, their tube were to become clogged, it's a pretty easy change as an outpatient procedure. So if they wanted to not touch it at all, they they might not be able to use it before they come in and get the tube changed itself. And so there's a little bit of thoughtfulness that has to go in on the patient's perspective, but then you don't have to use it. So I'll have people who maybe live in an assisted living facility don't have someone to do that for them. And they're like, we'll just get it and we'll worry about it later. Okay. Okay. (laughs) But it's there. Thank you so much, Kim Chernis and Lisa Molnar for providing access to your expertise today. This is a big topic, and we really appreciate your thoughts. It was an honor. Thanks for having us. Feeding tubes are not something anyone really wants to discuss, but of course it's best to have the information should you need it. And if you do have any follow-up questions on that subject, I encourage you to speak to your doctor or reach out to your local chapter of the ALS Association before you go down the Google rabbit hole. Because, as with most things on the internet, there is plenty of misinformation out there. In the second half of this episode, you're going to hear my interview with Matthew Sanford, who is recognized for his extremely impactful work in the world of yoga and has recently developed a program that is changing the lives of those living with ALS and their caregivers. It was uplifting to listen to his experiences and life lessons, and I hope you gain as much from this conversation as I did personally. We are excited to be visiting space occupied by Mind Body Solutions at the Yoga Center Retreat in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. And we are joined by the founder of Mind Body Solutions, the internationally renowned Adaptive Yoga Training Center based out of the Twin Cities, Mr. Matthew Sanford. 
Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on Connecting ALS today. It's an honor to be here. I'm sure many of our listeners will recognize your name because you're also a celebrated author, instructor, and speaker on a variety of topics. Your memoir, Waking, which came out in 2006, 2006, has been referred to as one of the most inspirational pieces of literature written in the last decade. But for those who maybe don't know your story and the context, could you share just a little bit about how you ended up on this path? Yeah, so I was injured when I was 13. I'm a paraplegic. I'm paralyzed from the chest down, which means I broke my back at T456. I was in a car accident that, that killed my father and sister, but left my mother and brother not physically injured. And But it, I went through a shredder. I broke my neck at C1. I broke my back at T456. I broke one of my wrists. I filled along with fluid, but I also sustained an injury to my pancreas that left me unable to eat for 60 days. Wow. So I went from 119 pound, very athletic 13 year old boy to 79 pounds. So it was, I woke, I was in a coma. I woke out of the coma. That's why I, one of the reasons why the book is called Waking. Going to sleep, I was snuggled in against my sister on the trip back from Kansas City, Missouri, back to Duluth, Minnesota. And just as we crossed the Iowa, Missouri border, we had preferential icing, that thing you learn about in driver's ed, and we went right off an overpass, right before the bridge part. And so I went to sleep surrounded by my family and love and woke up to a completely different life. So the metaphor of the title, which it's also waking up to the mind-body relationship, waking up to is the emptiness and silence that's revealed by trauma, is that just strictly loss? was the loss of access. So like, I live a mind-body problem. So if you tickle the bottoms of my feet, I don't feel it. If you tickle the bottoms of your feet, you feel it. I get emptiness or silence when you touch my legs, right? And so the story of waking is also the story of waking up to the subtlety of your mind-body relationship. And through the practice of yoga, I started yoga 12 years after my accident. And I've been practicing yoga for 28 years now. I started to wake up to my whole body again. So that's what the arc of the book is that is from waking up from a coma through starting yoga and then even be having and becoming a father. So that's the arc of waking. And how old are your children now? Uh, My son is a 19. 19. No, it's kind of crazy. You know, it's so funny. Moment to moment, it takes time and then all of a sudden it's gone. So it's it's a strange paradox. Yeah. Time's a funny one. It is. It is. So your nonprofit, Mind Body Solutions, the mission, and I want to make sure I get this right, is to transform trauma, loss, and disability into hope and potential by, as you said, awakening the connection uh, between mind and body, which is, in the, in the way you put it, a really beautiful sentiment. What are the primary ways that you and uh, your instructors, your team, your ambassadors, as you call them, what are the ways that you put that into practice? Well, you know, every, every human being we have the part of our, our awareness that, that we can control and feel. And then there's also that other part of us that some people put into spirituality, which it belongs there too, of, of the parts of our human being, our human consciousness that you can't control and you can't feel, but they're all housed in you. And we help people realize that trauma and loss and disability isn't just loss, that in fact, there's a part of you that gets opened up when your life gets hard. You know, our culture likes the overcoming story as if something bad happens and you overcome and you win. Mm -hmm. There is no winning with your own body. With ALS, you're not likely to win, right? 
And that so the overcoming story is not one that works great with ALS. It's true. Nor, nor is it one that works great with a disability. I'm always going to be paralyzed. My spinal cord is severed. So what is healing given that I'm never going to be able to reverse my condition? How do I incorporate trauma, loss, and disability as part of my internal fabric without trying to overcome it and without getting angry and bitter about it? How does it inform who and what I am as opposed to being something you try to overcome or defeat? And this is very important when you have a chronic diagnosis. How do you live the rest of your life? How do you make it be an opportunity, which I hate that word, but like a way for you to realize what matters, what's important. But what we found is that through, I've been teaching people with all kinds of ability and disability for over 22 years or so. And what we found is that it's possible to be connected to your body deeply and internally without being able to move your body. Now, this is how it's so powerful and can be such a boon to someone that's going through the, the arc of ALS, is that it's possible to stay connected to your body even as you're leaving it, okay? So that's not just, that's aging. Yeah. That's not just ALS, that's the point. ALS is a microcosm of what's happening to all of us. Eventually, all of us will stop breathing. All of us will lose, as we age, the vibrancy and the ability to do things. So it just turns out with disability, like a spinal cord injury, or any kind of disability, or a, a diagnosis like ALS, it's about realizing what's happening on the life arc, what's being lost, what's being gained. And I think that I watch people lose the ability to lift a glass anymore, or lose being able to stand up and thinking that they're, that means they're not connected to their body anymore. And that's not true. And that's what we pioneered. Really, really amazing way of framing that. And I can see how that becomes the philosophy from which you draw all of your work in Mind Body Solutions. That makes a ton of sense. Thank you for putting it that way. Looking back a little bit, when you originally started thinking about making this your life's work around the time you were 25, right, mid-20s, mm -hmm. what kind of resources were available in terms of adaptive yoga at that time? Was there a community that you could turn to or experts that you could bounce ideas off of? Or were you kind of starting from scratch and you thought, we need this because there is this gap in resources? Well, more the latter. Back in 1991 is when I started practicing yoga. So at that time, there was yoga out there. It was becoming the very beginning of its popularity. But there wasn't anything that we, that I encountered that was for people with disabilities as overtly. But I happened to encounter a phenomenal yoga teacher who was willing to explore what she knew of yoga. Her name was Joe Zukovich. She lives in San Diego, California. She was willing to explore what she knew about yoga and then explore what it meant for yoga to travel through my paralyzed body. And in that process, when I realized things like, because I teach yoga poses, they're called asanas, that the principles of yoga, how to be present and vibrant in your body, don't discriminate. Yoga poses, full yoga poses do. So when someone's got somewhere they're not being able to move as well, they think, oh, I can't do yoga. Right. Or all they can do is meditate. And that's just not true. Like you can be vibrantly connected to your body without being able to flex muscles. And so in the course of my last 20 some years, 
of, well, so I started teaching adaptive yoga like in 1997, 96. I've learned how to do it with all sorts of different conditions and disabilities where I can help someone be more vibrantly connected to their body in a way that helps them feel more whole. But what's important with disability and with trauma and with loss, because some of the ALS is going through a lot of loss, is that the insights are for the caregiver and for the, for the quote, patient. The one thing that I know about having had so much medical issues is that there's an intense loneliness to becoming what I call medicalized, where suddenly your, your health has hit a place where you're just a patient to everybody. And even your caregivers are having to do things for you, your family even, and they think of you and they're kind of scared and you get medicalized as a patient all the time. And that's part of what we're trying to change. We're trying to say there's another way to be vibrant too that's for you and your caregivers that keep the connections more vibrant and not just medicalized. So it turns out that the same principles that allow me to teach someone with cerebral palsy or a traumatic brain injury or an eating disorder or whatever, all the different populations that I help, right? The same principles help someone with ALS and their caregivers. And so all of the insights of mind-body solutions arise out of realizing that embodiment is possible in a variety of ways. And that, that they're just, it's how you teach it that is different. Thank you for what you said about that sort of medicalized patient mentality in working with individuals living with ALS. They'll talk to us about, uh, it's hard for them sometimes to be seen as people first because they do, they feel like a patient so much of the time. And when they're in a clinical setting and when working with their doctors and practitioners, of course, they're going to be referred to as a patient, but it, it goes outside of those facilities and they feel like a patient so much of the time. So all the time. And I just can't, it's a profound loneliness, right? Not only for the patient, but for their loved ones, they miss their dad. They miss their mom. They miss their sibling because they're always like, Oh, there's always like that kind of worry. And so it's an injury for both. And, and that's, what's so important. So, like we have a program called Living to the End that is for anyone with a cryogenic diagnosis. And what we do is we come out and we send someone out for six visits for free in home, but we want the caregivers there. We want the family members there. And we wanna show how it is together. Like, so for, let's say someone's in more advanced stages of ALS mm -hmm. and they can't move very well and they're having trouble breathing. There's mind-body insights that Breathing isn't just about the inhalation and the exhalation, right? And that's what the medical model emphasizes. Yep. So someone with ALS is losing their breath. Right. And often that's what is the end, right? Mm -hmm. And so the emphasis from the medical model is stuff like deeper breaths, deeper breaths, quantity, quantity, quantity. And at a human level, the person is going to lose that. They're not going to win. So to only emphasize the quantity of their breath, is to ram their head right into the ALS. And so not that you wanna keep as much quantity as you can, oxygen levels and the percentages and all that stuff, but there's a whole bunch of mind-body insight that comes out of yoga that helps you realize the quality of your breath. So when, like for example, imagine someone can't move at all anymore, but he's got two kids and he can't lift his arms anymore, right? But the two sons, help the arms lift at the same time. So he starts to be able to move his whole body at once and calibrate whatever breath he does have 
with the movement. That motion. Right? And it turns out that the body on this strange level also breathes. And so my approach, and in, in one of the approaches in Living to the End, is to try to emphasize quality breathing while the body's moving with help. I was teaching in Portland a couple weekends ago, and I, I agreed to do a, a one-on-one session with a guy with ALS, trying to help him, like, re, he's thinking he's got all this loss, he can't move anymore, and helping him get bigger in space and take up space again. But what's important is, is that as he started, he was there with his friend and his personal care attendant. And as he started to move with help and breathe and lean forward into his life rather than fall back into his wheelchair, I look and the two people helping him are weeping because they miss him. And he starts to come alive again. So it's the contact. Instead of just the medicalization of, I got to do this, got to do this, you got to hold up my head, you got to do that. You know, I'm talking more at the end stages. Yeah. Right. There's a shared experience of dynamic energy between the caregivers and their loved one. That is healing for everyone else too. Because he's he's got two sons. This guy had two sons, a 14 year old and a 12 year old. And he's broken about what are his final messages gonna be to his son. And he's been keeping his kids away from it to protect him. But I was trying to say, let them be part of your vibrancy. And what's your last lesson gonna be? Lean in. Don't be afraid, your kids are gonna have a hole if you keep them out and you show them. So I'm a dad, so chokes me up too. Oh, understandable. Right? And it's like, And it was like for him to start moving his body again, he was very athletic. It's like, it's possible to do, but the medical model doesn't have the time to do it. It's money, it's insurance, it's all these other like complexity that makes that diagnosis so difficult, Mm -hmm. right? And so there's a human component of this that we can do better. People just need to know it's possible. And that's what we do with, with our program, Living to the End. It must be so powerful. And uh, I imagine you get that kind of feedback from a number of the folks that you work totally. with saying, I didn't realize that this was possible. And it, it has to move them on some level. When you meet with individuals living with ALS, is that the kind of feedback that they give you? Totally. And that they didn't know it's possible and how good it feels. And, and we didn't realize how much it was gonna affect the family members Mm -hmm. to see and feel and share again in a way. And it's so simple, but we get caught up in all the the other stuff. And so bringing back that component of it is is I think crucial. And, And the other thing you don't realize is that you can stay vibrantly connected to your body and improving the quality of your breath with movement will also make your breath have more quantity. But I don't, we don't emphasize that. We emphasize like being here and being connected. And it seems so simple, but it's one of those things that our society is so overwhelmed with the possibility of what's going to happen to the person with ALS. They forget to be with the person who has ALS and what that is to share humanity at that level. Because everyone's a little bit scared. I mean, that was, I'm still, that, that session with that guy, I can still feel it. And it's like, he's going through things I can't imagine. So that's why it's almost easier for us to medicalize someone with ALS because 
the truth of it is hard. And what you're doing for caregivers is so important as well. Uh, speaking about living to the end, there's a very well done video piece on your website uh, with yes. a woman named Mary and her, her husband, who is also her caregiver. Are you hearing from the caregivers in these initial visits uh, for that program saying, I didn't realize that this was going to mean this much to me? That's the whole point. It's, it's an amazing thing because as we know, like same with trauma and loss and disability, death doesn't happen just to one person. I mean, it does obviously happen to one person, but it's happening to the whole community. The, all the family members, all the loved ones are actually having a rip in their humanity mm. because they're losing someone mm -hmm. who's so connected to their ability to love, right? And so it is shared and we need to get more collective about the process. And, and, and I really think that some certain simple mind-body stuff grounding the sensation of grounding helping someone that's losing the ability to move their body stay grounded in their body that can happen without movement helping them expand because you're gonna hear her falling back in their chair they're thinking oh my god i can't pick up i can't eat feed myself anymore so they get heavier and heavier and fall back in their chair and know that that's not you can expand still too these simple core sensations are transformative both for the person with ALS and for the family members to be part of something positive. And it's so, it's this amazing, it's, it's, I mean, it's sacred beyond belief. The thing that's hard for us, we have a program that we actually have trouble getting referrals because this is such a sacred private mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. How do you invite a stranger, an ambassador into your home, into yeah. something so sacred? Yeah. We've never had someone not be effusively grateful that they did it ever because and it's so and it's not some weird yoga thing it's like literally let's be together figure out some movement and help the person with als keep living in more spaces but the, the living to the end program isn't necessarily as great for someone who's first diagnosed right because they're still trying to maintain everything i can't believe the number of people said well i was just going to lift weights and work harder and get through als so is that part of the diagnosis where you're just trying to get back to where you were before and thinking that if you just work hard enough it's actually gonna not come right and that process you just got to go through that arc of it but if you learn the skills the earlier you learn them the more you don't lose your body right losing your body is very hard for the mind and i was going to ask you so for someone who is in the earlier stages of the disease are there benefits i'm assuming there are but to start these kind of practices early on and then as more loss becomes part of their journey they can apply some for of those sure things. Right, for sure, because there also the there are you know getting better at learning like balance as a sensation, not just as an accomplishment, because people are going to start losing their balance, right? And learning how to balance better, take support better, not be afraid of the cane, not just because oh I'm I'm getting worse because I have the cane, but in fact, like using a cane helps me stand upright, and the center of my chest needs to stay upright for me to stay balanced. So instead of like fighting gravity and, and doing all this broken movement, right, which is gonna make their balance worse, you help them realize that support means quality, not loss. And that's one of the things you're trying to change, but you have to change the caregiver's mindset too. You have to retrain those You have brains. to go like, wait, this is how the quality maintains, right? And it's a, such a wonderful shared journey when that happens. 
Matthew, you are, you mentioned Portland. I know you've taught all over and mm. that you've trained instructors who teach all over. The Living to the End program specifically is based here in the Twin Cities right now, mm -hmm. correct? Is that something where depending on how that goes, might you consider expanding that or training others to offer similar That's programs? That's always the whole point. The thing is, is like, so like our adaptive yoga program, I've been teaching adaptive yoga to levels of disability for since 1996, mm -hmm. right? And we needed, like if I had in 1997 tried to say I knew it all, right? Which you never know it all, right? So for us, we're in the phase where we need more and more experiences, right? More and more people that have referred to us. And we could, we can start teaching the stuff now. And we already started, but that is part of the goal. I think mind-body techniques should be part of our, our caregiving literacy, because all of our parents are getting older, whether they have ALS or not. This culture is getting older. And there's like some statistic that everyone in 20 years or 25 years will have, 50% of every households will have someone disabled in their house. So this means this is coming because with insurance money running out, with benefits running down, we're going to have to take care of each other, right? And so this isn't just about ALS. This is about learning how to actually be with each other through suffering and through loss. And so, no, we will do it for sure. But we really do want a little bit more experience before we start advertising nationally. But we've trained over a thousand yoga teachers, right? And the same principles apply, right? And so the, the training's out there. So if you were to come now to one of our adaptive yoga trainings, you would learn the fundamentals of what it would be in living to the end, just applied a little bit differently, right? So, and we are, we've, we've been kicking back because we get because the end of life is so sacred and people have a hard time sharing it with, with someone they don't know, it turns out that we're getting more demand from the caregivers. Mm, and, and yet we want the more and more we can work with people mm -hmm. and, and refine what we know. So we're in that kind of like, we want to do both, yeah. but we want it. We want to like, you a need little a bigger bit data more. set. Mm -hmm. So I mean, and honestly, sense. it's, the thing, well, the thing that's hard a little bit about living in the end is you fall in love with the people you're helping. Like everyone gets connected to each other and then that's all good, you know, but it's, it's not a problem. It's a wonderful thing. But that, that means also the ambassadors have to have boundaries too. You know, they're not quite caregivers and they're, you know what I mean? So it's hard. Losing anybody is hard. Loss is hard. Mm -hmm. And you alluded to a little bit earlier about the vulnerability um, of people in those moments and the intimacy of going into their home and working with them mm -hmm. in that state. Uh, there has to be a lot of trust and a, another level of comfort that sometimes, particularly in the Midwest, I totally. think people will initially bristle against. And it's like, I don't know that I'm ready for that. They're, so. they're against the idea of it. Once it starts happening, they're incredibly grateful. And that's why maybe we end up training more and more caregivers. Yeah. Right. Because then they can go take it home. The person isn't ready for it. The caregivers know it's necessary. Right. And so it ends up being we go in and train caregivers like, and the person's not there. Right. Yeah. So and that's fine with us, too. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So my last question for you is what other resources do you recommend people give a look? I want to make sure we properly shout out uh, the websites, mindbodysolutions.org. Yes. And your website is MatthewSanford.com. But go to mindbodysolutions.org. This work is linked through the nonprofit. And there's a ton of great info on mindbodysolutions.org for folks that are outside of our tri-state area where our chapter of the association serves, where should they be going? What should they be reading or watching? Well, we have a YouTube channel. 
And so part of it is that you're not going to see, there's some footage. There's also a documentary that's made that's been in, in uh, it's not open to the public yet, but it was made about our work. And one of the three people that it was Bruce Kramer that- Dr. Had, Bruce Kramer, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Bruce Kramer. He was one of the three stories that was followed. Oh. So that'll eventually be 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 possible. I'll look forward to that. Um, there isn't a lot of like just with ALS, like on our YouTube channel, but if you look at what we're doing with disability, it's the same. There are different, I mean, there's a lot more. There's like Zen Hospice. You ever heard of this? I have not. It's an amazing program out in San Francisco that is training caregivers around using mind-body techniques. So there's a lot of beginning, like music therapies, like I train pastoral care people now. And hospitals are beginning to come and wanting to train their people that are more there. Music therapists are beginning to expand beyond just music. So some of the integrative techniques are coming through more traditional forms. It's just that slower and they've got a bill for insurance, right? So finding a really good yoga teacher, one that's trained with someone at Mind Body Solutions, because we have like, we have a list on our website of over a thousand people. You know, our goal is to have a, one of our trained yoga teachers in every city in the world. Yeah. Not a big deal. Ambitious. <laughs> right? It's going to take some time, but like there are resources like that. And our website, look at stuff on our website. And, you know, is there a, a quintessential book? I, I don't know. Not about what I'm doing. It must be exciting for you on that level to know that these practices are being more widely explored and accepted. And as busy as you are in your entire career, you must hear from people all over the place, all over the country, all over the world saying, we're trying this, we're checking it out. What do you recommend? What advice do you have? Here's what's working for us. So one of the things that we've done now and we're in the middle of trying to do it is, is we are made a big investment here at Yoga Center Retreat in digital equipment. So we are like filming a ton of stuff. So there will be more and more resources on our website and training for caregivers that are, and we're just gonna give that stuff away, ah, that's right? Amazing. So that's part of our nonprofit. So. But like there will be an increasing amount of digital content to watch mm -hmm. and the training and all that stuff. And that's something that because because the adaptive yoga movement, too, we're getting people in Uzbekistan. They want to get invited to go to there's certain places I'm not going. I'm yeah. getting too old. <laughs> yeah. right? And Uzbekistan's probably one of them. That's all. But there. there's, you know, and so part of the hope is that we're trying to develop a model that expands our worldwide presence digitally, but then also offers learning pods where we are accessible through Zoom and talking to people as they're looking at the stuff and asking questions. So we're trying to kind of develop um, a resource that will be like that. It, unfortunately, like everything, it takes money, it takes time. It takes all the things that the world puts before you as a hurdle. Yeah, and it's interesting because we've spoken to doctors and clinicians who have really touted the benefits of telemedicine and how they believe, specifically for ALS as well as a number of other conditions, telehealth is the future and it'll be so important to meet people in rural communities and in their homes and wherever they're at via video and they can accomplish so much in that way that will provide all kinds of benefits for people. Matthew, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and the philosophies of mind-body solutions with us. Our audience is really going to appreciate this insight. Well, I also appreciate that you guys are exploring. That's part of it. It takes two. Mm. Thank right? you. You're exploring. We've been developing. That's how it works. Yeah. Thanks again. We'll yep. talk to you thank soon. You.
That's going to wrap up episode four of Connecting ALS. And I should thank Kim, Lisa, and Matthew once more for their valuable time and insight. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts by visiting connectingals.org and be sure to follow us on social media channels. Connecting ALS is produced by Garrett Tiedemann from the headquarters of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you again in September. Thank you.